I, I enjoy meeting together with God's people on Sunday night. It's just kind of like having family time together. You know, we're all in here together. And uh, got some older church members, been here a long, long time, and it just does a pastor's heart good to see people that just keep on coming and they don't quit, they just keep on coming. And uh, as we see newer folks come in, it's always uh, a wonderful and exciting thing to see them and, uh, and rejoice with them. And hopefully we have a place where they will fit in. I, I think Christian friendships and churches are kind of like old Bibles. They just get sweeter as the days go by. This old Bible, I, the one I preached out of last Sunday night was similar in size to this. It was a black one. It's the one Marcus gave me a a number of years ago, and the only page that's loose in it is where I'm preaching right now in our series through First Thessalonians chapter 3, <laughs> and that page is coming out, and so I decided tonight I'll use one of my other Bibles, and I picked this one up, and it's just the right size, I think, for a pulpit Bible for me, and fits in my hand nicely. I was given this right after I got saved, and this was 1980 or 81, and so it's it's over 40 years old, isn't it? Over 40? Yeah, it's over 40 years old. And that old Bible is just, you know, it's dear to my heart. I've had it a long time. And it's kind of like your wife, you know. You just don't want to get rid of her. <laughs> you just want to stay in love. And so, well, some of you didn't say amen. So, wives, if your husband didn't say amen right there, <clears throat> you, you need to have a talk. This is an old Schofield. And a few pages are loose knit, but in First Thessalonians chapter 3, where we'll be right now in a few minutes, that page is still tight because I just put a piece of scotch tape in it. <laughs> that's, that's what you do when, when they get loose. You just tape them back together. And, you know, someday maybe I'll break down and quit being a tightwad and just send it off and get it rebound and keep it for old time's sake. But we're in First Thessalonians chapter number 3. We have been doing... A chapter by chapter, and some of these we're breaking down maybe two sermons out of a chapter, but tonight we'll cover all of chapter 3, Lord willing, all 13 verses in that chapter right after we read the text. And so follow along as I read, if you will. Wherefore, verse number 1, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Paul is writing here. Verse 2 says, And sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you. Now underline that if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible. Underline that word establish. That's going to be related very closely to our topic tonight out of this chapter. To establish you and comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when, we could, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our afflictions and distress by your faith. For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. Now underline those two words, stand fast. Verse 9, and what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct, you, direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish 
your hearts. Now underline that word, establish. To the end that he may, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Father, we pray that you bless us as we look into this chapter in 1 Thessalonians. Lord, help us along the way as we think back over chapter 1 and chapter 2, Lord, what we've already learned. And Lord, help us to glean from this chapter 3 tonight those things about being established, steadfast, strong in the faith. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to desire that strength that only you can give. Bless us, we pray, like you did the church at Thessalonica. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago when my family moved to our present location, about four miles north of town, out in the country we, uh, we, had, we had all kinds of trees all over the place, about 20 pear trees. I mean, we, I don't know what anybody would do with 20 pear trees, but we've had them, I guess it could feed the squirrels. That's what my apples do. I've got a couple apple trees, and the squirrels always strip those trees. And we've got some grape vines and some berry vines, and, and uh, I think we've got some elderberries and a few other fruit trees. But we had some big old sweet gum trees right, right by a little, uh, little creek. It only runs in wet weather, but when it comes to big rain, that thing is full and it's raging. And we had some big sweet gum trees along the bank of that creek. It had been raining for two or three weeks off and on, and some of those rains were really hard, and it washed away some of the embankment where that one sweet gum tree was standing. And I went out one morning only to find that huge, I'm talking about big sweet gum, this big around at the trunk, uh, this big sweet gum tree laying across our driveway. And this was a long time ago. And that thing just stood as long as it could. It wasn't rooted deep enough into the dirt, and when the torrential rains came, the tree fell. And that's what we're addressing tonight in what Paul is teaching about learning to take a stand. We'll make that our title tonight, learning to take a stand. That sweet gum tree fell. Paul didn't want these Thessalonians to fall. He wanted them. He'd won them to Christ. He'd started a church there in chapter 1, and he had uh, nurtured them along. He was the evangelist in the beginning, and then he became their pastor, and then he moved on to do some other work. And so he's, he's in love with these people. I mean, he won them to the Lord, and he's, he's really, really uh, got a heart for these folks. And he didn't want them to fall by the wayside. A little baby Harrison, when he, he, he's getting to the stage now where he thinks he can walk, he can't, but he, if, if you're holding up his arms like this and letting his feet touch the floor, he'll just kind of waddle along. But if you were to turn loose of his hands, down he'd go. And so... Pretty soon he'll be able to stand. Paul wanted those Christians at Thessalonica to stand, to get grounded in the Word of God. Now, they hadn't been saved all that long, and they needed to be grounded in the Word of God. They needed to be grounded in the faith. They need to be, they need to be strengthened to the point where when the storm of tribulation and persecution would come through, they wouldn't fall. When they were challenged by the devil, that they wouldn't fall. And so... This is where we're talking about tonight. Paul had been their spiritual parent. And so how then, since he left and went to Athens, how could he take these people he loves and establish them to be able to stand in the faith? How could he do that? Well, he wanted to bring them to the next step of maturity. And so he talked about three ministries that he performed to help them to be able to stand. These three, these three ministries will help you to stand too. And if you've not been saved very long or if you've been saved a long time, none of us are quite there yet. None of us have arrived and we all have to learn how to stand. Number one, how did he help them to become firmly established, to stand? Number one, he sent them a helper. He was gone. He's in Athens and he's willing to stay in Athens alone and send Timotheus, old Timothy up there to help them out. He sent them a helper. He sent them a man. And uh, in verses 1 through 5, you see how Timothy helped these people out. Apparently, he didn't join Paul in Athens, but Paul sent him back to Thessalonica to help that young church. Notice why he sent Timothy. Timothy was a good man. But why did he send him? His concern. Well, in verse number one, let's read it again in chapter three, verse number one. Wherefore, 
when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So he's, uh, Paul is, he, he knows these believers are pretty young. That church is pretty new. That church needs to be solid. There's a lot of churches in America that start as the days go by. New churches start quite often. We've seen a number of them start since we've been here at Searcy for 26 years. We've seen a number of churches start. That's that building across the street where we used to be located. There have been a few of them over there. They're there for a while, then they're gone. And Paul didn't want that to happen to this new church of the Thessalonians. So he was concerned that as new believers, they shouldn't just be left. As a new church, they shouldn't just be left to struggle. I mean, think of it this way. What if Justin and Amanda, when they're a little baby, old Elisha, it's Elisha, right? Elisha, going to be a prophet of God. When old Elisha was born, what if they had just put him in a little basket and carried him out to the sidewalk after they got out of the hospital, set him down on the sidewalk and say, see you little buddy, hope you have a good life, bye, and they just leave him. Well, that would be strange, wouldn't it? I mean, he's too little to make it on his own. He's not big enough to find his own food. He's not big enough to walk. He's not big enough to stand. He needs some parents. And that's what Paul wanted out of this church at Thessalonica. He wanted to send Timothy because Timothy would be like Paul was, a parent to that church, somebody who would see after them. You see, it's not smart to just win people to Christ and let them lay on the sidewalk as a brand new baby. They need to be discipled. They need to be taught to stand in the faith. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. He knew Timothy's character. Not every believer is equipped to be able to strengthen others like Timothy did. Now, I think everybody ought to be able to do a little bit. You have friends, you have family, you ought to be able to do a little bit. I mean, we can, good night, we can invite them to church if nothing else, can't we? <laughs> and so, when you see a new believer, man, he's wandering. He doesn't have anywhere to get anchored in. Say, hey man, I don't, I don't know all the answers, but go to church with me and we'll see if we can hear something that will help us. And bring them to church. Invite them to church. If you can't win them to Christ right on the spot or if you can't disciple them uh, in your own power, bring them where they can be surrounded with other believers and hear the word of God. And that's what Timothy's kind of character. He was the ideal man to sin. He was, he was used, him and Titus both had been used kind of as troubleshooters. When Paul would establish a church and he'd hear that church is having some problems, they're facing some trials. He would send Timothy or Titus to be the troubleshooter, work out those problems. And so Timothy's a guy that's been doing this. He knows, he knows what Paul wants. He's, a, he's a, a man of character. He's a man that has some training. He's been with the apostle Paul. He knows what to do. And so Paul sends him. He's the right kind of person. <laughs> he calls him Timothy, our brother. That means Paul picked somebody that was a Christian himself. <laughs> I mean, if... If a church needs somebody to be a troubleshooter, an interim pastor, a leader, then it needs to at least be a Christian. <laughs> I mean, you can't lead somebody else where you haven't been yourself. And so he sent Timothy. It says that he's a minister. He's an able minister. The, the word deacon comes from the word that's used here, diakonos, and, and we get our words deacons from it. And it just simply means a servant. You know, deacon's not some special administrator of the church that tells the pastor what to do and hires and fires staff members and, and selects the sermons and the speakers for the preacher. <laughs> He's a servant. A deacon's a servant. Somebody said, when are you going to get deacons in liberty? Well, in, in the Bible, in Acts, they had about, about 5,000 before they, in Acts chapter 6, they had about 5,000 before they started looking for deacons. So I say, as soon as we get 6,000 people, let's pick some deacons. <laughs> huh? <laughs> that makes sense? Well, that might be scriptural. <clears throat> but you can, be, you can be a servant. You don't have, have to have a title to serve God. I mean, we've got all these qualifications and, and uh, you know, look into the background of these guys that we call deacons like they... They have to be some sort of saint. 
Well, Paul himself was no saint. He used to slaughter Christians and hail them, hail them into the court. And so, you know, we just need to be servants. And for somebody like Timothy, he went to that church at Thessalonica and he was experienced at this. And taking care of new believers and strengthening a, a new church, it takes somebody who's got some love and patience. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? It takes some love and patience. It's not just everybody that, that can or will do that. It takes love and patience because those people, they don't know much. They haven't been saved long. Their church is new. They don't know what to do. And man, they'll disappoint you. I don't know how many people have disappointed me over the years, but I'm always glad if they leave and then come back. I'm always glad to see them come back. Had somebody leave a while back. And over, I think, a rather non-issue, like we have lost a few over the years, you know. You stay in the church long enough, you'll see a few people come and go. We lost somebody. It was just, to me, I didn't think it was that big of an issue. And uh, it was not an issue, really, to me. And uh, when I couldn't uh, convince that person that this church was the place where she ought to be, I said, well... You know, if you ever decide to come back, the doors are open. We'll love you. We'll be your, your fellow helpers in Christ. Just come on and come back whenever you feel like it. Now, whether they ever come back or not, I don't know. But it takes some love and care and patience. No wonder Paul chose such a man as Timothy. He said about Timothy in Philippians 2.20, he said, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state talking about Timothy. He said, Timothy's on the same page of the book with me. Timothy's not a flash in the pan. Timothy's not a guy that's going to be a show pony. He's just going to be a good, solid guy that'll love you and teach you, and he'll just help you get established in the faith. And so Paul's thinking about Timothy, thinking about his character, and he's thinking about the church's conflict. In verse number 3, look in our text again, he said that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Now, they were undergoing some persecutions at that church. They were having some trials and tribulations. And Paul said that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Meaning we're appointed to trials and afflictions. You knew that, didn't you? He didn't say, if you should have trouble ever in your Christian life. <laughs> He's saying, when you have trouble in your Christian life. Because, brother, it's coming. It's going to come. Sometimes it comes and leaves and comes back again. And it's just like an old friend that won't leave you alone. <laughs> It'll just keep coming back. Troubles and afflictions. And Paul said, we don't want you to fall when these things happen. And so I'm sending Timothy to comfort you, to encourage you in the faith. And that's what we need. We all need encouragement in the faith. What's Paul saying? He's saying don't quit. Don't back off. Don't give up. Don't quit praying. Don't quit witnessing for Christ. Don't quit going to church. Don't quit loving the Lord. Don't quit your prayer life. Don't give up on the Lord. Just keep on going because we're going to send old Timothy and he's going to help you. Well, then there's a second thing that Paul did in order to minister to these people. He wrote them a letter. <laughs> he wrote them a letter. Verses 6 through 8. He said, but now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us. He said, you, you folks wanted to see me and I wanted to see you. And verse 7, he says, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you all in, in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Paul's saying, just stand fast and it'll be better. Well, Paul's response was to write them this letter. This letter became part of the Bible. This, not, not all of Paul's letters that he wrote were inspired of God to be part of Scripture. But this one was. Because it's in the Bible. If you see it in the Bible, if you see it in the King James Bible, it's inspired of God. Every single word, every paragraph, every page, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all the inspired word of God. Not one mistake, not one error, and I don't care what the 
the theologians may discuss and say the need for a, for a brand new version of the Bible so it's easier to understand and get some of the errors out. There are no errors and it's easy enough to understand just like we've got it. I'll tell you what's harder about the King James Bible than trying to understand it. I'll tell you what's harder and that's trying to obey it. It's trying to follow it. That's the part that most people don't like because it's authoritative and people in our day and time don't like authority much. <laughs> you see it on TV and on the news, boy. They, they don't like authority. Well, it also tells us something since this letter was written. It shows us that the Word of God is the best thing to use to disciple people. <laughs> now, I know there's, there's devotionals and there's there's discipleship manuals, and, and some of those are probably very good. But there's nothing that will take the place of the Word of God. You can use some things in conjunction with it. But listen, friend, just because it's written in a book, don't ever think that it overrides the Bible. Your commentary may have some good, helpful ideas in it, but it never outshines the Bible. And I read commentaries, I read books, and I think it's great to get ideas and maybe some suggestions of other scriptures from other authors and maybe from their practical experiences that will help me to face some problems with, uh, with a scriptural background. But just because they say something doesn't make it so. <laughs> Always check it out in the scripture like the Bereans and see if those things are so. Paul admonished the Ephesian believers, concerning the Word of God that, that, he's, that he's using to strengthen these Thessalonican believers, what he's calling in Ephesians 16 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. We just need to use it. It's the thing that gets us where we want to go. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he used the Word of God to defeat him in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 1 through 11. Jesus, what did he say? When the devil come along and tempted him, time after time, Jesus said, it is written. The word of God is from the foundation of the world. Nothing supersedes it. And not even the devil can refute it. Although he may try, God's word is one of the best tools that we can use. And it's what Paul chose to take these people to sanctification and comfort and encouragement an establishment at the Thessalonican church. The Bible establishes us because it's inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, it talks about this, and it says it's profitable, listen, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. Oh, that can be something that people don't like either. People love to be encouraged but they don't like to be taught doctrine. You, know, you ever hear anybody say, oh, come over to my church, man. We, we, don't, we don't get into that doctrine stuff. <laughs> you, know what, you know what doctrine is? It's teaching, teaching scripture. You know what they're saying when they say we don't get into doctrine? They're saying we're not going to teach you the Bible, but come on over anyway. <laughs> we'll tell you what some man said. It's profitable for doctrine. In this little book of of First and Second Thessalonians, those two books, they're just about every, every major doctrine of the Bible appears there in some form or other. And Paul is teaching those people doctrine. Hey, church, we need to know doctrine. We need to know what the Bible teaches so that every wind of false doctrine that comes through won't shake us and make us fall like that big sweet gum tree. Amen. We need to know what the Bible teaches for doctrine. And he says for reproof. Oh, you know what that is. Reproof from the Word of God is God shaking His finger and saying, you need to straighten this out. Reproof. God's saying, I see something wrong. Does it bother you if the Bible points out something that's wrong in your life? It shouldn't. We ought to really be glad. It's kind of like having a big knot on your tire, you know, and you're going down the freeway at 80 miles an hour. Oh, I mean 75. We've got a state trooper sitting here. <laughs> We're going down the freeway at 75, and you've got a big knot on your tire, and it's, it's thump, 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 and you're going 80 miles an hour. If that thing blows, you may kill yourself and a bunch of other people. You don't want that knot on your tire, so when you go by the tire store and say, oh, I wonder if there's something wrong. I keep hearing a thumping noise under my car. And the guy at the tire store said, man, that thing's about ready to blow. 
What did he do? He just pointed out something that needs to be fixed. That's what the Bible does. Reproof is... Doctrine tells us what's right. Reproof tells us what's not right. Correction tells us how to get it right. And instruction tells us how to stay right. That's what we need. (laughs) If something's wrong, we need God to say, hey, that's not right. Straighten it out. I love you. I'm going to love you anyway, but straighten it out. I love you enough, I don't want you to go down the freeway and kill yourself. Reproof tells us what's not right. Correction tells us how to get it right. And instruction tells us how to stay right. 1 Thessalonians is saturated with Bible doctrines. The Word of God is food to nourish us. We kind of touched on that this morning, didn't we? Food to nourish us. In fact, this whole, this whole chapter 3 kind of dovetails right out of what we were preaching on this morning. I didn't plan it that way, but maybe God did. It just happens to be along the same path of growth and being established. One reason God established local churches is so that believers would have a place to get together and learn the Word of God. Now, I know there's other places you might find out something about the Word of God. I know you can read the Word of God at home, but it's a regular basis at the church that God designed. It's a regular occurrence. Look, I believe in good singing. I believe in programs. I believe in a nice facility with air conditioning. <laughs> I believe in all those good things. I believe in having property. And if we got room, we got like 12 acres out here. We can build a big softball field, maybe a golf course. And, and Chad's back there saying, hey, man. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could do a lot of stuff here. But no matter what all we do, there's nothing going to replace the preaching of the Word of God. That is the centerpiece of our church. Paul sent a man. He established them in the Word. I'm glad God sent a man when I first got saved. God sent a man by the name of Elvis Sneather, my pastor. Boy, he taught me some basics about Christianity that I desperately needed. I mean, I didn't know how to come in out of the rain when I got saved. He helped me to be, there was a man with a Bible, and he taught me stuff. And boy, that helped me a bunch. And then there's a third thing. Not only did Paul send them a man and a letter, he prayed for them. See it in chapter 3, verse number 9. It says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God. Now watch verse 10. And it says, Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. What's he saying? He's saying, well, I pray for you about once a month. (laughs) No, that's not what he's saying. I might pray for you, I might not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I pray for you night and day. Now, do you think he ever got up off of his knees? (laughs) I, I suspect so. He planned a bunch of churches and preached the word of God. So I don't think he's on his knees all the time. But he was the kind of man that I believe when he was when he was going about his daily business, he carried on conversation with the Lord wherever he went. You see, you don't have to go through a formal prayer position and have a certain place. Now, I think all those are good things. If you've got a certain place where you pray every day, thank God. That's good. But you don't have to be there to pray. You can pray wherever you happen to be, and you can carry on a conversation with God. Did you know he understands English? (laughs) He understands groanings, which... We can't even understand ourselves when we speak them because sometimes you, you feel so bad and sometimes you're grieving and you, sometimes you're in pain and, and you just groan. God says, I understand that. I understand your heart. And Paul was praying for these people. I mean, he, his love for them was so ingrained that he would pray for them, uh, maybe between services, maybe between church plantings, maybe when he's walking up the road uh, in Asia Minor to go to the next town. He's walking along, talking to the Lord as he walks, praying for these people. Down there at Athens, around a bunch of heathen, when he's not talking to the heathen about the Lord, he's talking to the Lord about the heathen. He's talking to them about, talking to them about the Thessalonican church too. Thank God Paul was a praying man. 
The word of God and prayer should go together. The prophet Samuel told the people of Israel, he said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. See how that goes together? He said, it's unthinkable that I would stop praying for you. And on top of that, I'm going to teach you. Prayer and teaching, the Bible, going together. Peter said, but we, speaking of the apostles in Acts chapter 6, he said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Two things he mentioned there. What was it? We're going to pray and we're going to minister the word. That's why they were selecting those deacons we talked about a little while ago, those servants. They needed somebody to serve the tables of people that weren't getting fed physically. And the preacher said, man, feeding them is a good thing, but we can't quit ministering the word and we can't quit praying just to feed people. I mean, if we, if we don't preach, then we'll just send a bunch of people to hell on a full stomach. That's not good. He said, we're, we're going to keep praying we're going to pray about what we preach. Did you know that a preacher ought to pray about what he's preaching? He ought to pray about, God, what can I give those folks? <clears throat> there's, got, there's got to be some hunger. There's got to be some thirst. There's got to be some needs that they have. And Lord, I don't know all those things, but you do. <laughs> kind of show me what to preach, Lord. I'll do my best to bring it if you'll show me what. And I don't always know when I'm preparing a message exactly who it's going to help, but I've prayed and asked him to guide me in the direction of that sermon. And there's people that's come up to me before after a service and saying, Preacher, that's what I needed. Now, it might not have helped somebody on this side, but it helped somebody on that side or vice versa. Because God saw a need and he met it through the word. And so don't get mad at the preacher if a preacher steps on a toe once in a while. Because if he prayed and God said, step on that toe, then we ought to be happy about it. We ought to say, here it is, Lord. Step on it. I don't like getting my toe stepped on all the time. Like a little encouragement along the way. But once in a while, I need my toe stepped on. What about you? I need God to say, hey, there's something we need to fix and go about doing it right. And then Paul had the same emphasis about prayer and the preaching of the word in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse number 32. It says, and now, brethren, I commend you. That means commending them by prayer. He said, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Prayer and the word of God goes hand in hand. Paul prayed for three specific requests. Now, hang with me. We just got about five or ten minutes to go. So if you'll listen real good, I'll preach real fast. Maybe. <laughs> no promises. Listen to this. He had three specific requests that he prayed for. Number one, in verse number ten, he prayed that their, fi- that their faith might be mature, being perfected. Now, they never did reach perfection, and you haven't either, and I haven't either. But perfection, going for perfection means we're moving in a certain direction towards, towards the Lord, becoming more godly, reaching higher, higher heights of maturity. He said in verse number 10, night and day praying exceedingly that we might, listen, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Who has something lacking in their faith? I do. He does. She does. They do. So do they. We've all got things lacking. Anybody reached perfection yet? I hadn't made it. We all have some lack. Something that we need to be established and built up. You see, we move from faith to faith. Now, these people had undergone some tribulations, some trials. And each one of them would take them from this level of faith to another level of faith. You see, trials exercise your spiritual muscles. Every time you go through an uncomfortable situation in your life, if you're in contact with God, He'll use that to make you stronger so you'll meet the rest of them with more grace and more strength. 
when Abraham was called to go to the promised land, man, he was on fire for God. He got there. Next thing you know, it comes a famine. What did he do? He said, Lord, we'll just stay here and see what you do. No. You know what he did? He hightailed it to Egypt. His faith kind of got weak there, didn't it? And then he had some trouble with Hagar and Sarah and, you know, and some things like that. And with, with his worldly nephew, Lot. Remember all those problems? Each time Abraham's faith got tried, he got a little stronger. And you see him progressing and maturing in the faith. That happens to you and me too. As it says in Romans, from faith to faith. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul said that your faith groweth exceedingly. How does that happen? <laughs> Trials, hardships. Now there's a second request that Paul was considering here, and that's found in verse number 12, that their love might abound. Look at verse number 12. <clears throat> and, the, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in what? Love one toward another. Did you know we're supposed to love one another? <laughs> That's what it says there, isn't it? Paul said, I'm praying, I'm praying that you'll learn to love one another. You know that rascal that you don't care for at church? <laughs> That's the one you need to start loving. You know that one that gets on your nerves and you think you're just on a little higher spiritual level? You need to pray for them and you too. Because <laughs> you got pride. Pray for those it's called your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in the same body together. It'd be, it would be for me not to love my own body. Would like I despise that left hand ah, and hurt it. I mean, who's really going to feel the pain there? You wouldn't hurt your own body, would you? Just as a side note, don't go punching holes in it then. I saw a girl, a girl on a newscast yesterday. She had, she had pieces of steel stuck here and here and here and here and in her lips and in her tongue and, and uh, all over her face. She had little steel studs stuck all in her. I told my wife, I said, it looks like she was in a barbed wire factory explosion. I wouldn't want to hurt myself that way. And when you don't love your brother, your sister in Christ... You're hurting yourself because you're part of the same body. And he's praying for these people. Why, why is he praying for them about this anyway? Well, they're undergoing persecution, remember? Tribulations, persecutions. And when people get persecuted, listen, you know this to be true. When people get persecuted, oftentimes they get self-centered, they get a victim's mentality, and they, they turn inward and... They're kind of vicious to those around them sometimes. Not everybody, but some are. Because they're in pain from the tribulation and the trial. And Paul knows they're going through tribulations and persecutions. He said, I know you're feeling some pain. Now just settle down and love your brother and sister. Because they may be going some, through some stuff too. Huh? I heard one preacher say years ago, he said, be kind to everybody you meet because everybody's having a rough day. You never know what people are going through. Even that rude waitress that slammed your food down on the table and it's cold. You know, she might have been having a rough day too. Somebody might have just chewed her out a few minutes ago. Her husband might have mistreated her at home. She might have her house being repossessed. You never know what somebody's going through, so just be kind to everybody. And he said, in fact, he says that, that uh, back in verse 12, he says, and toward... All men, uh-oh. You mean those outside these four walls? That's what it says. He said, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, those that's in the body together with you. But there's a bunch of folks out there that need to be loved too. They may not like you. They may not dress like you. They may not like the same things that you like. They may even rail on you. But they need somebody to love them and bring them to Christ. Jesus, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that means people outside these four walls, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He's, he's not wanting people to perish. And even those that are against themselves and they're against you, they need somebody to love them to Jesus. That's our job as Christians. Love towards all men. And so he, Paul's trying to teach these believers to love one another. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, <laughs> in the <clears throat> council of young peoples in preparation for marriage, I often ask, if your wife became paralyzed three weeks after you were married, do you love her enough to stay with her and care for her? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Our vows usually say something like for better or for worse. Sometimes it's just worse. Did you mean those vows? And stick with it. He's telling these people, true love just deepens in times of persecution, in times of hardship, in times of trials. Now there's a third one. I'm almost, almost done. Hang with me. The third request is found in verse number 13. Watch this. To the end, he's, he's praying now. He's saying he's praying for these Thessalonican believers. Verse 13, to the end that he may establish your hearts. Now we said that from the very beginning tonight, didn't we? That he's trying to establish them. And since it's inspired by God and sent to a church, it probably means that we need the same thing that they needed. We need to be established. But how is he talking about being established here in verse 13? He says, unblameable in holiness. Oh, that's a scary word, isn't it? Holiness? We're not Pentecostals. Well, this is not a Pentecostal book. <laughs> this is a Christian book. This is for you and me. He wants us to be established, to stand fast, unblameable in holiness before God. In holiness. And nobody preaches on that much anymore. Nobody wants to preach on holiness because people, people automatically think, well, you must be a fanatic <laughs> talking about holiness. But it's in the Bible. Holiness? What is holiness? And whatever it is, if God, through Paul, wanted the churches to be established in holiness, that's what he wants out of you and me. And since the church is made up out of individuals, listen, since the church is made up of individuals, that means he wants holiness on an individual level. I mean, this church is no holier than its people. Holiness. Preacher, I'm afraid where you're going. <laughs> well, I'm just going where the scriptures go, and I'm going to let, let him lead. Holiness means being godly in our stand. He wants us to stand. He's saying, Church at Thessalonica, stand fast, unblameable, stand in holiness. Well, that means being godly in our stand. Holy means loving God more than we love this world. Did you hear that? Loving God more than we love this world. You know why, you know why these pews are not full tonight? Because some people love the world more than they love God. Yep. You know why some people didn't read their Bible today? Because they loved what they were doing more than they loved God. You know why some people never witnessed to anybody about the Lord Jesus and salvation that they could have for free? Because people love what they're doing in the world more than they love God. Holy means loving God more than we love the world and its ways. And it means, holy means separated from this sinful worldliness that we're surrounded by. That doesn't get preached much anymore either. Sinfulness. It's everywhere. When you turn on your TV, look, you don't even have to turn on your TV. If you just look at Facebook, you're going to, see a, you're going to get an eyeful that you didn't mean to get right there. You know that, the little boxes that pop up, the reels or, or the uh, videos on Facebook? Man, if you just scroll past that thing, sometimes you'll see, you'll see the beach full of women out there dressed like Playboy didn't even have women dressed that way back in, when I was a teenager. 
the casinos are full of people getting drunk out of their minds and throwing their money at those machines. I was in an airport in Las Vegas one time. I had to lay over there, and I, I just hung out in the airport. I figured maybe I'd be safe there, but that airport, <laughs> the airport was full of slot machines. And there's people sitting in front of those things and they're poking in money and pulling the lever, poking in money or pushing a button. I don't think they had the levers on. Some of them might have. But they're just putting money in there and just it's like a reflex. Throw money, lose it. Throw money, lose it. And I'm thinking, I wish I had a big cardboard box. I'd just write on it with a magic marker uh, slot machine and put a, cut a little slot with a pocket knife on top of it and let people throw it in there and then I'd have all their money because they're going to lose it anyway. Las Vegas, the beaches. My wife and I won a trip to Hawaii back years ago. We couldn't even hang out on the beach. It was so, it was so bad. We just rented a car and drove around the island through the sugar beet fields. <laughs> and, I mean, we had to do something. We're in Hawaii, you know. This world is sinful. San Francisco, Philadelphia, and even cities a lot closer. You can't walk down the street without watching where you're stepping. You may step on a, a needle because they're just laying thick. You might step on one of those needles and either get a dose of drugs or hepatitis or HIV or something. The world is sinful. God wants us separated from the sinfulness of this world. I don't care what the, the extreme grace people say, that God's not concerned about sin anymore. The fact that Jesus came, he said that he came to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to just keep you out of hell. He came because of sin. Did he save us so we could go right back in it? Did he save us so we could have a church that looks just like the world, got the same kind of music as the world, got the same kind of fashions as the world, the same kinds of fads? Is that? No, he wants us to be separated. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 2 Corinthians, listen to this one. 2 Corinthians 6.17 and 18. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate. There is a doctrine of separation. There is such a thing as a doctrine of separation. Be ye separate, saith the Lord. That wasn't what Brother Brooks said. That's what the Lord said. Be separate from them, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We have a culture that's gone off the rails. I mean absolutely gone off the rails. When men want to become women and women want to be men, and they take steps to get there, this place is crazy. We Christians have to realize that holiness and godliness adhere, no matter what they show you on the news and in those silly sitcoms and on the, on the TV and in their music, no matter how many protests there are, God chose the genders and there's two. It's a man and a woman. And their plumbing is different and that's why they get married. Not two old roosters. The genders are different and God designed it to be so. And when somebody says we're going to change it, God's plan is not for us. We're going to change it. Two hairy-legged old men decide they're going to get married to each other. They're saying, God didn't know what He was doing. We're going to fix this. That's the height of Pride and arrogance. The devil's tricked our society into reversing roles and, listen, homogenizing the sexes. Unisex. I heard that word unisex when I was just a new believer. Now, that must be a pretty remote thing. I heard what it was, and I thought, that's surely not ever going to go anywhere. People got more sense than that. But the fads and fashions combine. They want men and women to look alike. Even if you're not lesbian or homosexual, they want you to look alike. Why do they want that? 
Because those who promote that kind of lifestyle, can, if they can get you to look like the opposite sex, pretty soon you'll say, well, we can tolerate it. I mean, we're supposed to love everybody anyway. They never said to love their sin. And we're supposed to love everybody anyway, so we tolerate Pretty soon we're promoting it. And pretty soon we're accepting them into our membership. <laughs> Not here, by the grace of God. I'll die first. But if they can get us taking just a few steps in that direction, then they can finally lull us to sleep so that we don't notice that they're changing everything. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those general characteristics label those that are headed for hell. Are you saying that none of those can get saved? No, if you read on in that passage, it's like, and such were some of you. But it doesn't mean that you get saved and keep living that way. And he says, we are not men, we're not to be effeminate. He uses two terms there, two different kinds of people. He talks about the effeminate and then those who, abusers of themselves with mankind. Well, I thought they were the same thing. No, they're two different classes. The effeminate are the men who act sissy and, yeah, and I'm still going to use that word. I don't care if they kick us off of YouTube or not. The effeminate are a bunch of sissies, limp-wristed sissies. And then... He says, the abusers are themselves with mankind. Now, that's the outright homosexual. But one step leads to another. Once you get accepted as being effeminate. Hey, moms, can I just tell you, don't raise your little boys to be a sissy. Don't raise them to be a sissy. Teach them to be a man. Teach them to be masculine. I'm not talking about being brutish, rude, or impolite. I'm talking about just being a masculine man. And teach those girls... To be feminine. They can be soft. They can be pretty. That's what they're supposed to be. I'm glad my wife don't run a bulldozer and climb light poles and cell towers and stuff like that. <laughs> I just kind of like her soft and pretty like she is. Then we see that those those effeminate and the abusers themselves of mankind are listed along with some of the most awful sinners that's listed here that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Are you saying they can't get saved? No, they can get saved. Can they not backslide maybe and touch on one of those sins again? That's possible. That's not what God intended. So what's that got to do with us? Clothing hairstyles, fads, fashions. They all say something about our identity. When I see him in a trooper uniform, I pretty well know what he is. <laughs> when uh, somebody in the military shows up and they've got on a uniform, I can pretty well identify what they are by their uniform. And by the same token, our identity as Christians says something about us. Do we take our Christianity lightly? Are we gradually giving in to the fads and fashions around us so that we're paving the way for those who want to pervert the deepest parts of mankind? It's happening in churches. It's happening in churches. We've always had standards of dress for the people in our ministry that serve as leaders, teachers, singers, and so forth. And ladies that get on the platform wear dresses and look like a lady. And men dress like a man. We want that identity to show, look, with everything going haywire around us, we don't want to lend any support to it, and we're not going to here. Our workers and ministry assistants dress with dignity, and we expect that. 
I'd have shown up here tonight to preach in flip-flops and shorts. What would you think about me? Some of you would be upset. And the rest of you ought to be. Doesn't this, this pulpit, this church building that has a cross on top of it signifying that it belongs to Christ and has the Word of God as its constitution, does it not deserve some dignity? And should we as individuals in the church, should we not reflect that, at least in our leadership? Our leadership adheres to a higher standard. Now we accept, anybody wants to walk through the doors off the street, I've said this before, if homosexuals walk in, if they sit down and behave themselves or lesbians, they're welcome to come in and hear the preaching of the Word of God. I hope they do and hope they get saved. We're not going to allow them to cause a ruckus. We'll have Brother Lloyd throw them out. He'd do it too. He's an old Marine. We welcome them to come in and hear the Word of God. We're, we're glad about that. But for our workers and leadership, we, like in our our new Wednesday night classes, we were a little more casual than perhaps on the pulpit and platform, but it still deserves some dignity. It deserves more than spaghetti straps on the ladies and shorts and shorts on the men and tank tops. We don't want to, we don't want to look... I'm just saying, this is still the house of God. This is still the meeting of God's people. Training of young people needs somebody to model Christianity for them instead of looking like the world out there. Paul said he wanted the Thessalonians to be solid in the faith and solid in holiness. There ought to be a mark of holiness that distinguishes us at least somewhat from the world. There has got to be a difference. We don't want to look like we're headed for the beach, even on Wednesday night. Ladies who wear dresses, skirts, and culottes are fine in a casual setting without looking prudish. Guys, we can still look like a man and not dress down where we look like we're headed for the beach. Paul ended 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with a reference to these saints and how they should stand at the coming of Christ. Paul's saying, we're praying for you because Jesus is coming back one day and I want you to be able to stand. He said, I don't want you to be ashamed at the coming of Christ. We ought not to be ashamed of the coming of Christ. We ought to live like Christians, look like Christians, smell like Christians, talk like Christians. How do we conclude this? When we believe on Christ, we're given a responsibility to, to nurture those newer believers and bring them closer to God, help them be godly, and help them to be established in the faith so the devil doesn't trick them into flying off out into the world. Now, not everybody, as we said in the beginning, isn't qualified to disciple somebody else, maybe as much as somebody else, but everybody can invite people to church. Everybody can witness for the Lord. I mean, some people just say, I don't want to get involved. Well, we ought to all be involved to some degree. Did you hear about the company that was making blank bumper stickers? Blank bumper, bumper stickers, that's for people that don't want to get involved. As we review this chapter, we see how important it is to care for new Christians. And sometimes Christians are like those in Hebrews. They've been saved for a good while. They just hadn't advanced, or maybe they've even gone back a little ways. And we need to help them along to be strong in Christ. If the new Christian can't learn to stand, he'll never be able to walk. We can be an encouragement to those stand by his side as he matures. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for the word of God that gives us doctrine, reproof, or teaches us 
how to be instructed, and how to get things right and keep them right. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to be the kind of Christian that loves you enough that we'll go to great lengths just to help others to mature in the faith as we ourselves seek to be mature. Lord, if there's people who have not accepted Christ as Savior, I pray that they'd trust Him this very night with their own soul.